Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Leisha here. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by a very, very special guest. I'm joined by Mark Ryland, who's Director of Solutions Architecture for our public sector team. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks, Simon. Great to be here. Good to have you here. Now, Mark, you, you and I go way, 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 way back into the annals of AWS history, and we've been working with customers for a long time together. So it's nice to be able to kind of share some information. And I guess one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show today was to talk about really the work you've been doing with US-based and also some of the global uh, government and public sector customers you've worked with for many years now. Is it like six, seven years now? Does that sound about right? Yeah, six and a half years since I joined Amazon Web Services. And uh, I think you were already there in in the (laughs) trenches and uh, it was great. I was ready to shake your hand. (laughs) (laughs) So, so. I think one of the fascinating things is the amount of change that's happened in public sector around technology and IT. And I think public sector often has a or gets a bit of a bad rap. You know, it's kind of thought of as, as maybe slow or not pushing the envelope or not doing interesting stuff. Yeah. And once you're in that segment, it's it couldn't be further from the truth, could it? Yeah, there's some incredibly interesting uh, projects that go on. I think I think public sector maybe just stretches the bell curve out. So it's both in some ways got some super cutting edge things, but probably maybe more than its share of some really slow moving things. So it probably nets out, but uh, we definitely have had the full range of experiences as, as we worked in this space. Absolutely. And one of the other interesting things about working in public sector is it, it genuinely affects the lives of citizens in a day-to-day fashion. So it could be the better provision of a service, um, more accessibility of something, simply operating something at lower cost or better scale so you're getting better value for your tax dollar. So it really is a, a, a kind of an important domain for us to get right, really. There really is. Um, things like disaster response where cloud has been a really big help to governments in solving problems and getting um, resources to people and saving lives. That's been really exciting and uh, an area where, you know, again, broad impact, very different than a lot of the commercial opportunities. Um, but of course, working with a broad range of commercial partners to do things like, you know, stand up geospatial mapping software, you know, overnight in order to respond to an emergency situation. So really, really cool and um, and compelling use cases. For sure. So let's let's maybe tell some stories and some of these we'll be able to name the agencies and some we can't. It just depends on whether they're publicly referenceable or not. But we're always happy to share stories about uh, what other customers are doing because it's kind of useful. So Maybe do you want to think about some of those early customers and how they made the shift to maybe a very sort of capital intensive waterfall model of providing IT for their constituents to a far more agile and dynamic model? Yeah, we've seen um, some really you know good innovation um, customers in, for example, uh, in the U.S. government. Um, there were. A doctor is working on a mer- a medical response issues. So uh, they are asking people to file um, com- uh, reports about the impact of medicine, whether there's been adverse effects and so forth. And these paper-based processes were taking literally six, 12 months to get from the patient back into, um, in this case, the Food and Drug Administration into their reporting system. So working with a, an innovative startup that was able to take some of these paper forms and do um, optical character recognition, pretty basic stuff, you, you might say, but, you know, it just hadn't been done. Um, and then using a cloud-based system for both sub- submission and analysis, they were able to reduce the time from, from months to a matter of days. So now um, across 
the United States in that case, the adverse medical reports are processed way, way faster using cloud technology. It's just one of dozens of examples that we can give of um, people doing things that really improve government processes. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how there's there's kind of this track of what are we currently doing that we can make go faster, and then what's kind of net new and what wasn't possible before. Maybe uh, share with us an example of something that you saw that you thought, wow, that wasn't being done before, and now we can do it because of what this customer can do. Well, I think some of the social media integration is a great example of that, where we have customers that are doing things like sentiment analysis from social media platforms. That's something that never was really conceivable um, until um, you know the new technologies came along, um, and 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 much more dynamic outreach to to citizens in a way that um, you know the, the traditional processes just just couldn't couldn't manage. Um, I know, for example, in the United States, um, again, I'll use a U.S. example that we have some great examples from around the globe. Um, but the whole Veterans Administration, which has really been a sore point with the U.S. government of, you know, some of the most critical constituents you have, which are people that have served in your military and then struggling to provide good services to them is, is extremely painful and, and, you know, just downright uh, wrong. And um, so the whole VA uh, administration and the Veterans Administration in the U.S. Has, has moved to much more dynamic processes, um, better outreach, more navigable portals, easier um, contact to to vets, um, and, and dramatically in, increased the the satisfaction level of vets dealing with with their government um, using using cloud technology. Um, and these were things that just literally, you know, the outreach just wasn't wasn't possible because there weren't until you have cloud and web technology, you just can't get that direct interaction with large groups of people. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think a lot of the, I guess, pressure or drive behind public sector organizations to have better systems of engagement with their citizens has come from really the, I guess, consumer or commercial world where people are used to dealing with, you know, the chat client that they like or getting their uh, you know, banking online, all this sort of stuff, you know, things we kind of take for granted for now. And it's been interesting watching public sector try to I guess, achieve that same level. I want to ask you a question from two aspects. You you speak to a bunch of customers and you speak to the very highest levels of um, department heads and leaders from a government policy Mm -hmm. standpoint, as well as those folks who are delivering and the the architects, et cetera. So maybe talk us about some of the, the policy changes and the approaches you see being required and also then the changes from the delivery side that, that needs to happen? Yeah, the, the policy changes, you know, they vary considerably, but, you know, we've talked um, from the early days about things like security and compliance where, the you know, governments understandably wanting to have uh, well-designed and defensible and secure systems have put into place a bunch of um, compliance models uh, that were based on very traditional kinds of designs and architectures. So things like, you know, how kind of how your data center's built and the color of the wires of your networks and things like that were totally inapplicable to sort of modern software-defined systems. So we had gone through quite a lot of work um, on the sort of security and compliance side to to modernize policies in that in that area and with with a good deal of success, but still uh, you know, still points of friction. Um Acquisition, another policy area where, you know, people had put in place, you know, this idea of um, a fixed cost contracting, which was dealing with abuses from decades ago where you had uh, cost plus contracting. So the governments would suffer when um, the, basically the, the, the more inefficient you were and the longer it took you to deliver something, the more money you would make because you're getting paid on a, you know, on a cost plus basis. 
And so to, to d- deal with that type of abuse, governments put into place these, you know, fixed price models um, where they, hey, here's a, here's a fixed amount of money and, you know, that's what you get and you deliver me a, a widget. Um, and when you come to a variable um, variable costing, which is one of the nice characteristics of cloud is paying for just what you use, then suddenly that becomes a challenge. And so even though you can maybe save a lot of money and be much more efficient, the fact that you don't know exactly what your bill is going to be in any given month becomes a huge problem for um, for governments in terms of acquisition policy. So those are things we've had to, to address. Um, and now, you know, we're still dealing with data sovereignty issues. So there's still this notion that, uh, gosh, if the, if the data is stored inside my physical borders, then that's going to create more safety for me and, and better, better security. And even though all the major cyber security events of the last, you know, decade or whatever had really little or nothing to do with physical location. They're always about, you know, the fact that you're connected to the internet or you're connected to some network that allows intruders to get in. And so all, you know, the, the issues that have to be dealt with are really very much on the, on the side of, um, you know, careful management of systems from, from connectivity perspective, little or nothing to do with physical location of data. And yet there's still policies around the globe that say, hey, I'm, I'm not going to store data outside my country. Um, now, again, there may be government systems where that makes sense, but the vast majority of business systems, uh, really, that that's really not relevant from a security perspective. So um, we just recently re- released a white paper. In fact, last week, uh, a, a white paper with a lot of really good information about progress we've made and, and uh, issues that uh, have come up over the years and, and improvements that governments are making and kind of waking up to the fact that the advantages of using these modern hyperscale cloud platforms really outweigh uh, the perceived risk of things like, you know, physical data location. So lots of stuff that's happened and, you know, it's uh, the world's still opening up, but uh, made a lot of progress in the last six years that I've been working in this space. For sure. And one of the things that's really interesting is, uh, is that security posture. And I really love having conversations with public sector security experts because you have a that deep conversation about sort of demystifying those myths and then showing them the situational awareness they can have when using AWS around their security posture. So can they track PII data moving around? Can they see you know, unusual activity on the network, et cetera? Once you show them how much visibility they have and that it's near real time, it kind of changes their mentality, doesn't it? Complete change, it absolutely. Right They've never been able, no, almost no significantly sized customers ever been able to achieve things like fully unified access control so that, you know, I, the same systems are used to log into my switches and routers and my operating systems and my hypervisors and my this and my that. You know, you go to a cloud platform that's all software defined and where there's a single uh, access control system for every API and suddenly you get that unification, the visibility that was literally close to impossible to achieve in a traditional physical environment. And when people see that, their jaws drop. Um, they're like, wow, this is fantastic. Um, but it takes a while to get there. You know, you look at it on the surface, you have a lot of questions. It's a new abstraction. It's not clear to you. You know, it's all safe and sane. And so it's a journey people go on. But um, I think you, uh, I'm guessing you've had the same experience I've had, which is, you know, you never... Never, ever go deep, deep with a customer and then have them walk away and say, nope, sorry, not good enough. I can do better uh, on premises. I've never had that experience. And so it's it's worth the journey. Yeah, absolutely. And that, there is that real, I guess, that joy, if you like, of that moment where you see the, the light in someone's eyes with the, when they get that aha moment and they're like, yeah. you mean I can do all this? Yeah, like, absolutely. This is <laughs> I was on a call earlier this afternoon, actually, with, with a customer. It's pretty cool. Um, very senior um, information assurance uh, officials in a uh, 
let's say, Ministry of Defense um, talking about some of the compliance issues and they're concerned about, you know, um, about so- about uh, nationality, like who, you know, who who are the, your employees, what, what citizenship do they hold and so forth and so on. And what we pointed out was, mm-hmm. look, even if, um, even if, you know, you were working with a local provider and you could say, yes, everybody in this environment, let's say like a colo or, you know, traditional uh, outsourcer, is of the desired nationality. Um, I can check all those boxes in your compliance list, but nothing in there talks about things like separation of duties. Like, is there one employee who can do all of the things necessary to, you know, access your most sensitive data? Root control, you know, root access to this control plane, root access to your hypervisors, root access to storage. None of that is is explicitly barred by any of these compliance models. And that is where the incredible risks come in when you have super users that can do everything. And then in a modern cloud platform, you have this very strong separation of duties so that people who are powerful users of one type of service cannot ha- do not have any significant access to any other service. And that in order to get these workloads working, all these services have to be working in concert. And so there's this very strong barriers built up along the way in terms of who can do what um, when you're concerned about uh, things like insider threat. And so... Um, you know, the, to, to check all the boxes doesn't actually provide better security than if you use platforms that um, don't necessarily check all your boxes, but are built and designed to increase isolation and, and decrease the, the risk from uh, people doing things they shouldn't be doing. Yeah, and, and particularly with the, the threat vectors we see today where people are getting you know, very s- targeted spear phishing type activities that then leak credentials of one person that then yeah, jump into other systems. That concept of yeah, that, that concept of being able to sort of in real time or near real time see what's going on so you can not just detect the threat but action it rather than that model where, you know, every couple of months we do an audit, then we realize we were owned two months ago. Yeah. And, it's, it's and realistically applying the least privileges principles. You know, people have struggled for years to figure out like, well, what is it that my admins actually need to do and how could I possibly remove privileges from their access that aren't really needed and then you look at something like our identity and access management system, which can literally generate reports about what exact APIs people have called over the last month. And, um, you know, over time, we'll even begin to automate some of those things. Um, but even now, you can actually know what is needed for someone to do their job by looking at the things they've done over the last, you know, whatever time period you want to look at. And you can be in the lockdown privileges um, in a way that is, you know, very, very difficult to do in traditional systems. Absolutely. So that continuous scoping down. It also avoids things like the uh, old password on the post-it note on the monitor, which I know you yeah. have seen and I've seen in many <laughs> office visits. Those have even showed up in television broadcasts. Do you remember <laughs> that? Uh, uh, <laughs> where someone yes. owned an, a national government system because <laughs> in the back of a newsroom they saw the uh, – <laughs> Uh, actually, it was a, I'm sorry, a national media player That's that right, saw the password, password on, on a sticky note in the back of a newsroom. Unbelievable. It's a big, big vector. One of the other interesting things I see with a lot of these um, uh, government departments and agencies, et cetera, is, is the challenge that they, even if they want to move to the cloud, they've got a lot of existing systems and often a lot of data. And one of the things I know a lot of these customers have been excited about were things like uh, snowball and snowmobile and digital globe i think is a really interesting uh more recent reference where they moved i think something like 70 petabytes of data from their existing yeah that was a fantastic use case and our first and one of our good public sector customers actually who was the um the pioneer one of the first users of snowmobile which is the truck that can move massive amounts of data around um 
And, uh, you know, they, they had, you know, adequate storage system on premises that they built over the, over the decades. But what they realized was that they couldn't unlock the value in that data that was possible when they put it in a cloud environment and then could provide very, um, you know, careful and monitored access to the data by, by third parties and by, um, vendors and, and customers and, and partners that could actually build an entire ecosystem around their data platform. And, Doing that on premises was literally impossible. So, you know, the, for them, that move to the cloud was all about unlocking um, value in a way that was uh, brand new for them and really enables a whole new line of businesses. Yeah. Yeah. And th- one of the things I like too is that it kind of shows that you can really brute force dig yourself out of maybe a, a dead end that you've got to due to technological changes, et cetera whilst you've still got custody of literally massive amounts of data. I mean, that's more data than most people have to manage. Mm-hmm. And by throwing literally trucks at it, you can actually fix the problem. And it's really, it's a nice yeah. way for customers to get yeah, out of where they're are, at. They're incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's the um, snow, snow star devices, so, um, you know, Snowball and Snowmobile and others, um, or increasingly, you know, good good pricing on high-speed network connections through our Direct Connect service where we have customers who are saying, wow, this is incredible. I didn't realize I could drop in a 10-gig circuit, you know, here for, for that amount of money. Back in the days of, you know, dealing with sort of telco pricing, that would have been inconceivable that you could get something like that for, you know, not many, many, many thousands of dollars a month. And now, you know, working with the right partners, you can find really awesome pricing for super fast networks as well. So, these problems are being solved all around us and disruptive plays are being made um, not only by AWS, but by our ecosystem partners to unlock data, unlock um, application opportunities. Um, it's a really incredible time to be in the IT industry with the, the changes that are going on. It is. It is. And one of the big things I see as a change is the access to scale at low cost that these agencies now have. A lot of projects were limited in the past because they said, oh, it'd be, you know, it'd be great if we have a massively parallel processing database, but we don't have $10 million to spare, or we think it would be really good to store all this information and merge it together, but we can't. Now, you know, organizations like FINRA, et, et cetera, have access to vast amounts of compute, vast amounts of storage, and those yep. more powerful high-level analytics platforms, which means they could run way more at scale more cheaply, which I think is it's, it's pretty interesting. Absolutely. That whole, and some that of these use, use case cases are highly system. variable. And, you know, one thing that we're seeing is you and I both see now just an uh, explosion of interest in machine learning and artificial intelligence and a very common pattern for, you know, building and using machine learning is um, this cycle of development with um, uh, you have machine learning scientists building their algorithms, testing and training, and then, you know, t- ingesting very large amounts of data and m- model building. And then you deploy these models, um, sometimes in very small devices or edge devices or mobile phones or, you know, um, things that don't require a huge amount of processing power the way that the actual model construction takes. And so the the, the pattern there can be, I'm running, you know, a Five you know, hundred GPU instances for a couple of days to build this incredible model, and then I don't actually do that again for another month or two until I try some new iteration. And so, if you had to procure that equipment and own it, you would be wasting it tremendously. But by uh, just simply paying for what you use and going for week to week, month to month, with only you know spinning up a large cluster when it's necessary, that's when cloud efficiency just becomes really extraordinary compared to all the previous alternatives. For sure. Now, if we've got listeners who are working in you know, public sector organizations, et cetera, and 
they're maybe not using any cloud-based technologies at the moment. Having been through this many times yourself, what would you what would you tell them is the best way to start engendering well, that change in their of, own organization? Um, avenues that we've seen that are that are common. I mean, obviously, a very simple starting point is sort of look at your public-facing assets, whether it's websites or you know, citizen services, things that are already all about outreach and, and, you know, reaching out and scaling, that can be a very um, straightforward kind of first first workload. Um, things like op- open data requirements. So lots of governments have mandates to open up data sets, but they don't have a good way to do that or a good way to, um, you know, uh, scale it or make it efficient or to do it in a controlled way. Um, those are all very, very common for kind of first first mover workloads for, for cloud. Um Kind of on the flip side of that, and you can almost say the opposite side is um, failing projects. We've seen a number of cases where governments were really, you know, kind of up against a wall because they were building something in a traditional way and it was just not working. And so we've been able to come in and, and do these sort of turnarounds or rescues. I mean, one of the most famous ones um, that has happened with AWS is in the uh, in the United States when the uh, healthcare.gov, which was the... Um, you know, one of the first you know major changes in the in the healthcare laws in the U.S. In, in many decades, the government set up the site that failed dramatically in its first iteration, and and it just it had been built by traditional contractors in a traditional way, and it just wasn't up for internet scale. Um, and by bringing in um, people who had experience in building for scale, and who therefore brought us in because they knew that AWS is the way to build highly high scale platforms in short amount of time. You know, they relaunched that service six months later, and it's been a super high function ever since. I think you something similar happened in Australia, I believe, with um, some failures around um, some of your elections uh, activities and, and turnaround with using cloud as kind of the, the second step to uh, to fix problems that just weren't seemingly were not fixable using traditional technology. Exactly. I think we see agencies running to the, the fundamental limits of the way things were done, and then that really forces the evaluation of the way things can be and the good news is uh the future is here and it's pretty good yeah <laughs> that's the job pretty well <laughs> who'd have <Absolutely>. thought it <laughs> yeah excellent well uh thanks so much mark for coming onto the podcast and sharing some stories with us oh it's been my pleasure and thanks everyone for listening we do love to get your feedback aws podcast at amazon.com and until next time keep on building